A little bok choy cabbage carved out of jade is one of the most revered artworks from the world of imperial China. Maybe you've seen it on display in Taipei if you're very lucky. People wait for hours to see the delicate sculpture and the little pale green bugs that rest on the cabbage leaves. Well, the story of how this precious sculpture and of how thousands of other irreplaceable artefacts from China survived the Japanese invasion and World War II It's being told for the first time in English and central to the tale are a team of curators who coordinated a spectacular effort to protect and transport the imperial collection thousands of miles across China, up rivers, across mountains, through 16 years of chaos, savagery and political upheaval. To tell us more on this Easter Saturday, I'm thrilled to welcome Adam Brooks to Saturday Extra. Adam's a former BBC Beijing correspondent and the author of Fragile Cargo, China's wartime race to save the treasures of the Forbidden City. Hello there, Adam. Thanks so much for having me. Now, this is a big story, Adam. Um, uh, uh, My producer and I were just so moved and frankly enthralled reading the book. Are these events only well known in China or have new sources emerged? They're reasonably well known in China. I mean, this whole story of the way that they saved the imperial art collections from the Forbidden City in World War II um, has been told a number of times in Chinese, uh, but it's never really made its way into English very much. There's like a couple of academic articles. There's one chapter in one book that talks about it, but the story's not really well known uh, outside China. And in the last few years, you're right, some new material has emerged from Chinese archives that has brought the whole story alive. And I was able to use that. You interviewed two surviving eyewitnesses, is that right? Yes, that's right. So uh, in Taiwan, I interviewed the son of one of the curators who was on that journey for 16 years Mm. around China, all the way through World War II, escorting and shepherding and conserving these 20,000 wooden cases full of irreplaceable art. And he was able to tell me what his childhood was like on that journey, what he ate, where he slept, how his parents were, the villages in the far west of China where they um, hid out and where they hid these art treasures year after year. And I also interviewed one of the curators themselves who was 100 years old when the time, uh, by the time I interviewed him, uh, who was able to give me a first-hand account. Good power of recall still at the age of 100? Yeah, he was still very compassmentous. He passed away um, shortly afterwards, uh, sadly. But but he was he was able to tell me all about the way that the, the, these cases made their way across East China at the end of the story. Yeah. Well, look, perhaps you could give us the historical context and introduce the father of one of those men you interviewed. You're just talking about Ma Hing, <laughs> such an incredible story, who understood. Uh, the Imperial Collection because he'd helped catalogue it for the first time in the 1920s. And you even have a photo of them working. But I think if you can just sort of compress why this is so remarkable. So the Forbidden City was the home of Chinese emperors from the 15th century on. For 600 years, the emperors of the Ming Empire and the Qing Empire lived in the Forbidden City. And they had this colossal 
collection of art, all sorts of different kinds of art, everything from paintings to works in jade to bronzes to tapestries to musical instruments, to suits of armor, to swords, to archives, encyclopedias, collections of poetry, calligraphy, you name it. It was this vast amalgam of art. At, uh, at the end of the Chinese monarchy uh, in 1912, the Republic of China, the young, fragile Republic of China was founded. And the, the, the last emperor and his household was kicked out of the Forbidden City. And in 1924, a load of professors and curators and art historians made their way into these silent, echoing, empty, freezing cold palaces. And they started cataloging all the art that was inside the Forbidden City. And they cataloged 1.17 million objects and texts. The catalog ran to 28 volumes. And then they turned the Forbidden City into a museum. It was no longer the home of emperors, the art was no longer a sort of imperial hoard. It became a national museum. And for the first time ever, it was open to the public and the public could see this art. And through the 1920s, the Palace Museum Beijing was the sort of central cultural institution of China. And then in the early 1930s, of course, all that began to change. With the threat of the Japanese, or, you know, the turbulence that began then. Look, I, there's a very important point you make in your book that um, the curators and the inventory teams were searching for something that hadn't been distilled in China. They were looking for an enduring Chineseness to nurture the new nation's sense of self because they didn't, they had a sort of an idea of a civilization. But but not a nation. Is, is that a fair way of putting it? Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I'm sort of leaning on historians here, particularly on Chinese historians who've thought about this quite a lot. But if you said to somebody in you know, the 1800s or the 1700s, you know, where are you from? They would not have said China. They would have said that they were from such and such a region and they were a subject of the Qing emperor. The idea of China as a nation state, as a modern nation state, really only starts to appear in the 1910s and 1920s. And the building of this museum was very much a part of that effort to generate a sense that China is a nation state and that all the people who live in this hugely disparate country with different languages and different food and different geography, they all belong to the same country and they all have this shared history. So mm. the founding of the Palace Museum and, and this imperial art collection was an important part of that process in, in nation building, yeah. Now, we've mentioned the cabbage carved from jade, which is exquisite to see. What else stands out from the collection in your view? Yeah, well, I follow a few pieces through the book that I particularly like for no particular reason other than I like them myself, to be honest. But one of them is a fabulous hand scroll, a thousand years old, depicting the lives of fishermen uh, on a river in winter. And it's just a beautiful, uh, gorgeous, generous examination of human life in the 10th century and the fishermen looking in the nets and, and, and poling their boats across the river. And it's just a wonderful piece of Chinese landscape painting. I look at some porcelain, extraordinary Chinese porcelain from the Ming era with these incredibly rare glazes that were very, very difficult to achieve. Um, 
And I look at ancient inscriptions and bronzes and things like this. And I, you know, I, I try to give a sense in the book of the huge variety of the art, but also particularly of its fragility. And um, this hand scroll that we're talking about is ink on silk, a thousand years old. Mm. If it gets damp or if it's exposed to too much light or if bugs, termites get hold of it, you know, it's destroyed. Uh, so when these artifacts were all packed up in their cases in the 1930s and evacuated from Peking, fleeing the Japanese advance. Uh, part of the huge problem these curators had was just conserving the art, keeping it safe, making sure it didn't break, didn't get wet, didn't get eaten by termites. Well, yes, this this crucial decision that Ma Heng, this man who dominates your book, really, and his team made this fateful decision to protect the collection and that they it, it it's got to be moved. What's happening that makes them so concerned around them? What's what's happening around right, them yeah. makes them so concerned? Nineteen thirty one, Japan seizes. Manchuria, which is what we call Northeast China today. Uh, 1932, uh, Japan attacks Shanghai. It bombs Shanghai. 1933, Japan is moving south uh, towards the Great Wall. Uh, early 1933, it's only four hours from Peking and the Forbidden City. Japanese aircraft are overhead. China is being gradually ingested by the empire of Japan. You know, we think of World War II as starting in 1939 or 1941. Um, if you ask someone in China, they will say it began way, way mm. earlier than that. It began in the early 1930s. And so in 1933, with Japanese bombers overhead and Japanese troops only hours away by road, the Palace Museum in the Forbidden City decides that they have to get this art out. They're terrified they're going to get bombed. They're terrified Japanese troops are going to come in and plunder it and steal it. So these 20,000 cases of art are suddenly on the move. They're on trains, they're on trucks, uh, they're on steamships. And for the next 16 years, as you said, 16 years, they move this art all the way to the far, far west of China, thousands of miles fleeing the Japanese advance. And they hide it. They hide it in caves. They hide it in temples. They hide it in quiet villages in the far west in Sichuan province and Guizhou province uh, to keep it safe and to keep it away from the Japanese. And Adam, Japan's defeat in 1945 brought no safety, I'm afraid, because the final act of the Chinese Revolution was about to play out between Chiang's national, Chiang Kai-shek's nationalists and Mao Zedong's communists. Now, what happens to the collection then? So the Republic of China is collapsing in the late 1940s. Uh, the communists under Chairman Mao are moving into key cities in the north, and it's clear that the Republic of China is finished. So Jiang Kai-shek, the leader of the Republic of China, orders his military, his government, to retreat to Taiwan. And he orders that China's entire gold bullion reserve will go with him, and he orders that the very finest pieces of the imperial art collections will go with him to Taiwan. So out of those 20,000 cases of art that have moved all China, all over China, all through World War II, about 3,000 of the very, very best pieces go with the retreating Republic of China to Taiwan. 
and they're still there today. And you can see them today in the Palace Museum, Taipei in Taiwan. But this means that the imperial collections of China that had been in the Forbidden City for centuries were now divided. They were split and they've remained split ever since. Goodness me. Did the communists threaten any of what was left behind? It, so that, that part of the collection did remain protected, did it? It did. You know, it did. Uh, we're all familiar with the stories of the way that the Chinese Communist Party in the 1950s and 60s went around smashing up old culture, burning down temples, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, campaigning against traditional Chinese culture. But the imperial collections were protected. They stayed safe. They made their way back to the Forbidden City in the early 1950s. And to the best of my understanding, they were protected by the Chinese Prime Minister, Zhou Enlai, who mm -hmm. shut down the Forbidden City and prevented the worst of the, the devastation uh, uh, from entering the Forbidden City. So the rest of the collection, the stuff that didn't go to Taiwan, is back in Beijing today, and you can see it today uh, in the Forbidden City in Beijing. Right. And let me tell listeners that Adam Brooks is telling us this truly amazing story. He's the author of Fragile Cargo, China's Wartime Race to Save the Treasures of the Forbidden City. Now, it's at this point in the story uh, you have access to the personal voice of Ma Heng, this chief curator, because he began to keep a diary at him. Now, what insights did you get into his world? Did he consider going to Taiwan, for instance? Yeah, a, a great question. So Ma Hung is this rather retiring, uh, quiet, gentle scholar of Chinese ancient inscriptions. And he's the guy who oversees this entire operation for 16 years, moving this art all over China to keep it from the Japanese. But in 1949, many of the curators, many of China's intellectuals are fleeing for Taiwan. They don't want to stay and wait for the communist takeover. But Ma Hung, my guy, director of the Palace Museum, Beijing, decides to stay. He decides to wait for the communist takeover. And it's not entirely clear why. Um, and I talk about in this, uh, this in the book. He mm. was old by this time. Maybe he just didn't want to start a new life. A lot of depression and anxiety. He was very he was he was very anxious about leaving his home in, in, in Peking and, and, and going abroad. But I think he was also just very, very loyal to the Forbidden City and to the collections. And I think he got assurances from the Chinese Communist Party that he'd be safe. And unfortunately, as I tell in the last chapter of the book, those assurances counted for very little. Well, you know, he stopped wearing Western suits. He was forced to conduct evaluations of curators and historians. He then became the target of investigations. Um, he was placed in cadre school and, and didn't return to work. I mean, actually, I found it really, really quite upsetting to read the story of Ma Hung um, because he, he wasn't interested in politics, wasn't he? Was he? He was never a political man. He, he lived for his scholarship. He lived for archaeology and ancient inscriptions and calligraphy. Uh, he was a scholar in, a, in a sort of in the traditional mold. And yet he finds himself in the early 1950s subject to investigation by the Communist Party and a protracted interrogation. He's taken away from his home. He's in his early 70s by this time. And he spends months in a, one of these facilities that were called Carter schools being interrogated by the Chinese Communist Party. And it's a really, it's a rather heartbreaking end to the story. By the way, for what reason? I mean, just clarify, listeners might think, well, why? Because he did do the protecting. Was it that he wasn't 
didn't seem to have done it enough or that he allowed half the collection to go to Taiwan? Like, what was at issue? It was larger than that, I think. Um, in the early 1950s, the Chinese Communist Party was trying to transform China. And to transform China, they needed to go after the old elites. They had to prize the old Chinese elites out of their positions of power. And they did this uh, in multiple ways. But one of the ways they did it was in a political campaign known as the Three Antis campaign, the Sanfan campaign. And the Sanfan campaign was notionally aimed at rooting out uh, bureaucratism, waste, and corruption, and so they just uh, they they went into every organization, every business, and every institution, and they just sought to bring down the old owners and the old elites of these institutions as part of Chairman Mao's attempt to transform Chinese society. That was really a forerunner of the Cultural Revolution, wasn't it? It was a precursor. Mm. It was one of the very first campaigns that was a precursor to political terror. Yeah, we must just go to the to the very end. He wasn't there. Uh, Ma Hung was not there for the reopening of of the cases that contained the rarest work of the imperial collections that he'd overseen for sixteen years. What had happened to him? He ended up after his interrogation. He was very withdrawn. He was very depressed. I think he was very psychologically traumatized in the early mid 1950s. He lived out his life at home. And in the end, he got lung cancer. Uh, He'd been a cigar smoker all his life. He loved smoking cigars. And he got lung cancer and he died in the mid 1950s. The art that had been packed up in those 20,000 wooden cases that he had conserved and overseen and protected for a large part of his life, um, the art was reopened gradually through the 1950s, both in Beijing and in Taiwan. So he never really saw the sort of, as I say in the book, he never saw the final act of his own vast feat of conservation. Yeah, And his son has never been able to find his grave. And his son never found his grave because the cemetery that he was buried in was smashed up in the Cultural Revolution. <sighs> yeah, that's right. And his son was, his son served as a as a soldier in the Nationalist Army. So he was a target of the Communists too and ended up spending 20 years in a labor camp. So, I mean, that was, you know, that was what it was like in mm. the early years of, in the early years of Mao's China. And um, these stories abound uh, in China. And it's it's worth kind of trying to factor into our understanding of that generation of people uh, whose sons and daughters now run China, right? Mm. Um, it's worth factoring into our understanding of China, this kind of colossal national trauma that they went through in the 50s and oh, 60s. And we've skipped over quite a bit. Look, final question, Adam. The collection itself now remains contentious. It, it still really has a dramatic life, doesn't it? It's still kind of politically charged, yeah, be- precisely because the People's Republic of China and Taiwan remain divided. Uh, tensions between them are very fraught. And the two museums themselves, the fact that the collections are split between these two places is a sort of reflection of the deeper split between China and Taiwan. And so the imperial collections continue to carry this sort of political charge Mm. with them. Yeah. I hope you've got film directors rushing to you, have you, (laughs) to make this story? We live in hope. (laughs) We live in hope. Oh, we all ought to know. Far more. It's very moving and um, completely eye-opening. Adam Brooks, thank you so much for telling it to us. Thanks so much for having me.
Adam Brooks, the author of Fragile Cargo, China's wartime race to save the treasures of the Forbidden City. It's a fabulous tale, isn't it? Published by Chatto and Windus. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.